0: You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 36. Today, we're asking the question, how do we tell the difference between theories and fads in safety? Let's get started. My name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety Work Podcast. We've had about 30,000 downloads or a few more since this has started, but we, we don't seem to be getting as much uh, new listeners as we did. So Drew and I thought we might start this episode by just asking some of you, um, if you might do us a favor and just share this podcast with one other person if you, if you like or are interested in what we're doing and help us continue to expand the reach of evidence-based practice in safety. But today, I'm really excited about our discussion today, Drew, because I still get a little bit nervous when I email your papers. And um, when I emailed you this one, uh, you came straight back and said, oh, yes, please. I'm really keen to, to hear what, you've had, what you have to say and learn along with our listeners. So, Drew, what's today's question and why were you so keen?
1: Well, Dave, today's question is, how do we tell the difference between theories and fads in safety? And the reason I was personally excited is I always love it when there's something that you've noticed and thought a lot about and then suddenly you discover, hey, there's an entire field of research that looks at this and does examine it in depth. And I think you and I have had conversations before about the way things seem to sort of like drift across from management science towards safety and the way some of these ideas seem to crop up and then go away again or cycle around in different forms. And I mean. We talk about it as fashion. We talk about it as fads, or but yeah, I, w- I was excited to find a paper that just like summarizes all of the scholarly examination of how these fashions and fads in management work.
0: So you mentioned Drew that we we've introduced a few topics out of the management science literature, and we're back in the management science literature again today. And I thought that we might introduce the paper quite early because we're going to use it to uh, to basically continue to frame this this field of research. So. How do we tell the difference between theories and fads in safety?
1: And the paper we're going to look at is called Fads and Fashions in Management Practices, Taking Stock and Moving Forward. It's very recent. It was published in 2020, and it claims to be the first comprehensive review of quite a large body of literature on fads and fashions in management. David, as you mentioned, when you're stepping into a new area, this is a really good way to do it is to find a recent thorough literature review that just explains what the field looks like. Otherwise, when you, you're at the risk of picking up one or two papers and getting a very slanted or very narrow or very... Possibly even you've hit an outlier, and you end up thinking that a maverick in the area is representative of what the area is like. So you pick up a, something that looks like a good literature review... You check out that the authors are actually reputable and published across the field so that you know that you can trust that they are fairly representing the literature. The authors in this case are Alessandro Piazza and Eric Abrahamson. They're both from business schools at Rice University and Columbia University. I'm not sure about Piazza, but Eric Abrahamson has 30 years of research, particularly on this topic of fads and fashions. Uh, He's published 10 books. He's got thousands of citations. Interestingly, when we get into the literature, you may um, look at those books with a little bit of scepticism when you see how books on management get published. But he certainly
0: knows what the field looks like. And as the authors explained, Drew, this body of literature on fads and fashion started as a result of researchers observing how... Management practices seem to wax and wane in popularity, often quite unpredictably, and sort of techniques seem to follow each other in these wave-like fashions. So, the literature, you know, seeks to explain this sort of transience, persistence, sort of overall trajectory of these management practices. And the authors refer a lot to what happened through uh, quality management. And I think it's around the time that this uh, this field emerged in the '90s. There was quality circles and total quality management and quality management systems and lean manufacturing and those types of well, those types of fads and fashions. So, you know, the paper makes reference to all of these types of programs within organizations and they sort of say that these these techniques are viewed by practitioners as sort of tools of their trade. And we could add to that list Drew, we could add behavioral safety, we could add safety culture, we could add safety differently, safety too, you know, as all kind of different management practices, techniques and ideas that would fall nicely into into literature that we're going to talk about today. And I think Drew, when I, you know, you don't have to talk to too many practitioners t- for to get the feedback that um, we're all too familiar with how excited people in organisations get with uh, new shiny things. So many people sort of say to me how it's always the new things and you know the shiny things in the organisation that are getting all the attention and the resources, and then slowly disappearing as the next shiny thing comes along.
1: So the, the literature, as it's summarised by this paper. And tries to answer a few sort of key questions. And the first one is probably the big one, which is what explains these apparent waves in the popularity of management practices? They seem to come very, very quickly. They flow, they spread. And then sometimes right as they're sort of hitting their peak popularity, they start to flow away again and vanish. And you sometimes they're completely gone again a decade later. How come some of these waves actually carry quite harmful ideas and often displace much more evidence-based or beneficial practices? And how come, even though we've got this wave-like behavior, some of these things seem to stick and actually just become a permanent way of doing business? And the paper gives a few examples of ones that disappear and ones that stick that we'll refer to throughout our discussion. And there's a sort of fourth supplementary question that we'll get to at the end of the podcast, which is the authors point out that most of this literature is set in the 90s, examining fads of the 70s and 80s. And in fact, there've been some recent changes in the way ideas start to spread between businesses, primarily as a result of the growth of technology, in particular social media. And so you, how, how does the advent of things like LinkedIn and the sort of online guru change the dynamics of fads and fashions in management
0: so drew the paper explores this uh innovation what they call broadcasting diffusion retention abandonment and rebirth of faddish and fashionable management practices and we're going to try and use a lot of safety examples um, the way through like i've already mentioned behavioral safety and safety culture and safety differently just to sort of help our listeners you know we're in the we're, we're interested in safety and we're going to try and um try and use this management theory to help us understand safety practices. The methods they use, like you said, Drew, they, they claim to do the first comprehensive review. And, and people will recall uh, episode 34, only a couple of weeks ago, we did our episode on how to find and and review research. So they actually started, as, as we suggested, Drew, with Google Scholar, and then they went to a whole lot of other databases. What they found difficult was that literature published on this topic was published everywhere, management journals, edited books, other discipline journals. And also a lot of different language was used to describe the same idea. So they started by looking, obviously, for management and fad and fashion and these types of words. But then they used like management practice, management technique. They, they really cast the net broadly. Then they did this thing, which I hadn't heard of before, Drew, called snowballing, which basically means every paper that they uh, included, they scan the references list to go, oh, there's a title of another paper that we haven't got yet. And they use their own judgment based on just the reference. Uh, the The reference lists to expand the net, and they found thirty thousand relevant items drew you know a single literature review can't do anything with thirty thousand papers in detail, so what they said is they they actually used the paper to to present a narrative view where they created a key framework and they picked out the key articles within that framework and then they situated those key articles within the broader context of the literature so drew, is that that kind of method to to come to try and review a whole discipline, 30 years of, of work on a topic? Does that, is that a reasonable way to approach it?
1: That's a very common, reasonable way for a literature review to make a genuine contribution to the field. Essentially, what they're doing is they're drawing a map of what currently exists, and they're pointing out the high points on the map. They're pointing out the dense towns. They're pointing out where there are border wars and skirmishes, where there's debate going on. And they're pointing out the gaps where, according to the map, there should be stuff, but actually they haven't been able to find any papers. So it sort of leads you on a journey through the field, which is great for a newcomer coming in trying to understand what the field looks like. And the slight risk is that they are imposing their own story or narrative over the top, which isn't necessarily how everyone in the field would see that same field. But I think it certainly is very useful for as a path for us to take through the literature
0: yeah, and I think Drew, like you said, the second author here, Abrahamson, has you know, has been at this discipline for thirty years, and they made no, well actually were, were quite clear in the methodology in this paper that they actually used their experience of the field to know what the field looked like and um, which papers. And they did a. they did lean towards the empirical evidence within that within that literature as well. They were very clear when they were talking about theory or when they were talking about something that had been empirically researched. There was, you know, like in any field, Drew. There were some definitional challenges depending on the author. A fad or a fashion could could refer to ideas, concepts, panaceas, or or even um, practical techniques. So when we say sort of fads or fashions, all the way through, you know, it could be something that people do in an organisation. It could be how they think in relation to a topic in their organisation.
1: Yeah, th- th- that's true. One of the things that I really like about the way these authors look at it is the way they try to keep the language, allowing for the fact that they're summarising authors who think slightly differently, is they say that what goes in and out of fashion is not the practice itself. It's, uh, I'll have to quote here, they say it's a label denoting linguistic behavioural prescriptions. So in other words, it's the theory or the idea that then describes a set of practices, and that's what gets spread, that's what goes in and out of fashion, Whether the practices actually happen or not is another question altogether. The labels and the ideas can spread even between people who aren't using the practices and people can claim to be using them and not actually implement anything. The other central idea, which I thought was really interesting because I think it's actually a fairly bold claim, but is supported by the literature they summarize, is they say the central reason why organizations adopt new management practices is because they genuinely believe that it's a rational way to manage stuff, and because they genuinely believe that it's an improvement over current practices. And so why they believe that's another question, but there's very little cynicism in this paper. You might think the terms fad and fashion are cynical, they're not. It sort of comes with the respect that organisations do believe that they're doing this to make themselves better organisations.
0: The paper proposes a model and then they go on to say that the model actually doesn't quite fit and work. But let's just there's a model. It's it's not linear. Um, it it's it's talked about in a sequential kind of way, but we're gonna talk about five areas in relation to sort of the cycling of fads and fashions. We're gonna talk about how the initial innovation typically occurs. Then we're gonna talk about what happens on supply side organizations. So when they say supply side, it's the people who are offering ideas and services to companies that do work. So could be academic institutions, consultancies, uh, and and other types of service providers. And then they would talk about how the fad becomes sort of contagious and takes hold in demand side organizations, which is the organizations with the actual problem with the management and, and, and where the practices take place. Then talk about how fads might get abandoned or actually might stick and persist in place in the company. And then they talked about rebirthing, Drew, which is like how the fad gets reimagined, or recycled or reborn after laying dormant for a little while. So there's five areas. We're we're gonna talk about each of those five. So Drew, do you wanna kick off with innovation and and the starting point for a fad or a fashion?
1: Sure. David, I'd be interested in your opinion on this one because it absolutely surprised me until I sort of stopped and tried to find counterexamples and I couldn't find any examples that buck this trend. The research shows fairly solidly that new management techniques don't come from gurus. They don't get invented by ivory tower academics. They don't get created by consultancies. They get developed within the companies that do the work. On the demand side, not the supply side. There's even some debate in the literature about whether they can even come from consultancies or academics at all. But certainly it's clear that even if they can can come, they generally don't. The fads start off with small groups of innovators solving problems within their own companies. But those initial innovations aren't able to spread by themselves. They're practical solutions that people just do. It's not until someone gives them language and some theory and turns them into something more marketable that they start to spread. David, do you reckon, does that sort of match your own experience?
0: Look, I think I think it um, so so I think as I reflect on it, it matches my experience. you're right. I was I was surprised at this as well, and I was trying to think of the examples, and then I was, you know, we've talked about high reliability organizations where you know it was the, it was the researchers from Berkeley who sort of went into aircraft carriers and aircraft traffic control and observed what was happening. And you know yes, the academics created the model and and created the language of high reliability organizations, but it was through actually seeing the way that the comp- those those organizations ran their companies. And I think we might think that the ideas come from the academics or come from the consultancy businesses, but they're just um, packaging up. This literature tells you how they're just packaging up observations that they make uh, of what's going on in the world, typically within organisations.
1: The example that sprang to mind for me was total quality management. And if you think about it, those books, the authors who are famous because of TQM they're all saying, this is stuff that was happening in Toyota that we saw, and we're telling you how to be as good as Toyota. So the initial idea wasn't created by these gurus. The initial idea was created inside companies. It was just observed and labelled and turned into books by the gurus.
0: And so, yeah, look, the um, there is, I mean, we're using fads and fashions and gurus. so we're using some um, language that we may not necessarily use on the podcast or in academic circles, but it's really great to see whole papers written about these these types of things or whole disciplines of of research devoted to these types of things. So they talk about hero manager gurus. Drew, these are the people who is like the Jack Welsh, you know, the, the, the ex-CEOs and the people who are still managing inside organizations who typically traditionally have written books about successful management practices that they've implemented and that they've learned, uh, you know, within sort of real-life problems and real-life uh, situations. And then we've got academic gurus that kind of like see what's going on in the world and use you know, use the science to theorise and kind of label these these innovations, and consultant gurus who are kind of packaging things up into repeatable offerings to try to generalise across, you know, markets or or industries or um, or individual organisations. So, as I say, they all craft language that tries to clarify and stabilise the innovation so that it can be adopted within within other organisations. So, I think a good
1: example in safety that we might talk about here is the idea of a learning team. Now, when I say learning team, I'm sure many of our listeners have some idea what I'm talking about, but learning team is itself like a retrospective label that got placed across practice. Um, And actually, what we call learning teams, or we call HOP, or we call everyday work exploration is actually very similar to quality circles that were happening decades ago. And even quality circle was just a name that was put over the top of a local practice that sprang up that just makes total sense of a group of workers get together to talk about what's going well or what's going wrong at work and how they're going to fix it. You start with those spontaneous practices that are people locally solving a problem. And then someone says, hey, look, we're doing this in our organization. We call it quality circles or we call them learning teams. And someone else says, oh, that sounds good. How do you do it? And so, the person writes a book, or writes a paper, or produces a procedure, or a you know, training course on how to do this, and suddenly you've gone from this proto-innovation to this marketable solution.
0: Yeah, and Drew, they the paper was quite clear in in the research when when they've looked at this about how those innovations sort of start to get described and labelled, and you know they've actually said the types of things that make the the fad or the fashion a, a much greater chance of Sort of broadcasting and sticking inside an organization is is the language and how it's used and if we think of like the seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen covey or something like that they're saying if you can create a three steps of this or a five types of that or you know we know the myers-briggs type indicators and and all these sorts of things if it's something with categories and steps and sequences and memorable little acronyms is 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 going to be uh off with a better chance regardless of the the merit of the individual idea I was going to tell a story here, Drew. Like I remember, um, I was quite late to the safety differently, or safety differently wasn't around then. But safety two type of literature, we were doing some work in company I was in about 2010, 2011, which would be very considered to be very similarly aligned to, you know, what we now know as sort of safety differently and, and learning teams. And when Sid came out to Australia and and started at Griffith University, I remember. I was just doing it because I thought there was a better way to, to practice safety and, and just making it work. And then I rang up Sydney and I said, oh, you know, this stuff that you're talking about, I've just read about the stuff that you're saying. And I actually think that we're, we're doing it. Can you come and have a look at what we're doing and tell us what you think? But that was a practice that I was just putting in place in my company because I thought it was the way to approach something. And I wasn't even aware there was a whole sort of literature and idea set around it.
1: So when we get to how companies start to adopt some of these ideas, we'll get back to that idea of people adopting the label to describe and rationalise practices they're already doing. Which certainly does make sense if you think that these things originally probably come from companies to start with. Some of those original companies actually then get resold and the repackaged idea that actually comes from their own practices to start with. There's an interesting gap in the literature about how and why specific practices get this treatment. So we know what spreads once it's been packaged up and marketed, but we don't really know why that happens. why, Why does someone pick this particular practice in order to do that? One of the things the paper points out is that there are lots more potential gurus out there than there are good management practices for them to get hold of and market. And before we had the internet, It was book publishers that were almost doing this curation job, is they decide which person is going to get to write a management book, and so they were almost like picking and choosing who gets to be the famous guru. But yeah, we don't really know why some things get packaged up and some things don't.
0: So Drew, that's the that's the innovation. So organisations innovate to solve local problems, and then those those innovations get get sort of packaged and commoditized by by organisations associations, um, consultancies, academics, and then gets broadcast. So talks about fashionable broadcast. So now we're saying, you know, we've got this process and we we, we got um, the broadcasting tends to happen on the uh, supply side organizations. Like I said, the consultants, the academics, you know, conferences, professional bodies, education institutions, training, more recently, like software companies that embed some you know, new practices within their sort of applications, social media. So this is this, this broad broadcasting. It's interesting, Drew, one of the examples that came up in this is um, the author's cite online learning as having all the characteristics of a fashion. You know, companies are solving a problem. Probably the first where this first popped up was a company that had a really spread out workforce and needed to get some information. So they they put a training course online and now we know, you know, then it gets picked up by consultants and software companies and broadcast. And, but it doesn't originate anywhere within the academic uh, literature about learning. It's a specific fad or fashion to solve a, an organizational problem um, that sort of then gets packaged up. So, so, so we're broadcasting, um, Drew. And then what, what's sort of going on inside organizations? How does it sort of get received then?
1: So, so just before we do that, I, I want to stick on the broadcasting just for a moment, because I think maybe giving a couple of examples might illustrate how the broadcasts happen. So if you imagine something like Six Sigma and try to imagine how it was that you first heard of Six Sigma, and it would have been through one of these broadcast channels. So maybe a conference invites a speaker to come along, and that speaker might be someone from a consultancy or someone from a company that sells Six Sigma as a training package or as a consultancy service, or it's someone who has implemented Six Sigma in their own organization. But they're now using that success in their own organization as a way of becoming a guru themselves and being the person who can talk about with authority about how to do it. You've got training organizations to get set up so you can become a, is it black belt in Six Sigma?
0: I think it's green belt and black belt. And yeah, there's a few different color belts.
1: And, and so by you know, the training itself evangelizes the idea and the people who've been trained then evangelize the idea further um education institutions uh, academics speak at conferences but also we talk about stuff in our courses so people coming up through the industry hear these things mentioned during their undergraduate education or during you know as a couple of slides in a training course and so that's sort of the broadcast idea on the demand side sorry on the yeah the, the demand side the people receiving the idea remember that what they're getting is not a set of practices. What they're getting is a packaged up set of ideas, the theorization and the labeling of the practice. So maybe what they do is they get that idea and they say, hey, this is what we want to do. And they actually set about implementing it. Maybe what they do is they say, hold on, we're already doing this. We didn't quite realize we were doing Six Sigma, but we didn't know it. So let's call what we're doing Six Sigma. So it's a way of defending and rationalizing what they're doing management comes to the safety department and says, hey, why aren't you guys including safety two in the stuff you do? And safety department says, oh, we're already doing that. We just don't call it safety two. But you want us to do safety two? Sure, we'll call it safety two. And so the literature sort of distinguishes between implementation when you do it, rationalizing when you say you're already doing it, and signaling when you say you're doing it, regardless of whether you're actually doing it. And if the two are different, the implementation and the label, then we call that decoupling. And there's all sorts of reasons why you might want to signal that you're following a particular practice.
0: yeah and look drew I found the fact that there was a whole body of quite robust empirical work on this idea of decoupling which is when organizations say they're doing something and they're not actually doing anything about it and examples that I could think of immediately was you know companies that always say they're 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 working to improve their safety culture when they're doing absolutely nothing inside their organization in terms of trying to implement um, changes to you know, their, their safety culture or, or nothing material. And there's all this research that says that, you know, obviously there's institutional pressures and 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 marketing and a whole lot of other reasons that companies say that. But then when they, the research also shows that individuals benefit by signaling they're doing something even when their organization isn't benefiting from actually doing it. And there's a study that was referenced in this paper that, you know, showed that CEOs were getting higher pay when they signaled the adoption of a practice, even if their organization hadn't done anything about it just by telling their board and telling their shareholders that they were actually doing something.
1: Well, I mean, that makes total sense. What do you want to put on your resume or report to the board? Uh, it's been steady as it goes for the last two years. I've kept things stable and on the course we were on. Or I successfully implemented our new initiative.
0: On um, safety culture. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we, we're broadcasting these ideas now. And, and Drew mentioned all the different avenues and ways that you might hear about an idea. And then it's, you know it, it hits the organization. And then you've got these these are the different stages and the paper refers to the upswing, the tipping point, the downswing and the latency in terms of like when you get this increase in in take up, uh, then you hit this sort of the crest and then you actually start to downswing away from it and the latency is where they're basically saying that there's no, I think the paper was basically saying, Drew, that there's no real new management practices. There's just practices that sit dormant in an organisation until someone puts a new label on it and and does it again. And they they cited a, a an example of a paper where they looked at I think a company in Sweden and I can't remember exactly the 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 fad, but they they demonstrated how between a couple of years in the 80s there was this process in place, and then there was about a 12 year gap, and then there was another three years of absolute focus on this process, which was just a new name for something the company had done a decade earlier.
1: I mean, that that makes total sense. Apart from changes in work practices because of technology, there really is very little opportunity for there to be genuinely, you know, you are the first person in the world to manage your team in this particular way. Or you're the first person to think of restructuring your organization along these particular lines. Or you're the first person to think of focusing on this instead of on that.
0: Interestingly, Drew, they sort of they there was a couple of things that I thought were interesting um, in terms of like just this broadcasting idea, and and one was they said that the slower the diffusion, the potential um, potentially the stickier the practice might be. They sort of said the quicker the rise, the quicker the fall. Or if you actually get this slow penetration of a, of an idea into an organization, you get a chance to int- institutionalize that idea kind of along the way, which which I found interesting, and I really want to read some more about. They also talked about the. Um, the acceleration and deceleration of broadcasting about a particular practice relates to the uptake within the industry on the demand side. So I, I was straight away thinking about the story of like DuPont and behavioral safety. Like in the 90s, you couldn't go anywhere without a broadcast message about behavioral safety, you know, coming from obviously like a company like DuPont on the supply side. But now that industry is not really, in my opinion, anyway, industry's not really having the uptake in behavioral safety practices they were maybe 20 years ago you don't see much broadcasting in the market for you know, behavioural safety practices. But some might argue some of the things that are being broadcast are just behavioural safety packaged up under a new label.
1: Yes, I always find it fascinating when I see things that are labelled as safety differently, that are in fact behavioural safety packages. And you see this recognition that spreading of the ideas doesn't necessarily mean spreading of the practices, but people have found it necessary to align at least the way they're talking about their ideas with the new language. So the literature, we're not going to go into all of the details of it, but one of the things that management science loves to do in particular, they try to model this spread of ideas in different uh, contagious ways. So all sorts of different theoretical models for how things spread, and then they match how ideas actually spread to these models to work out which one is the best fit. And so there are some features that are very common that cause this spread. Uh, One of the most simple ones is just how many other people are using it generally, then how many other people are using it within your particular industry. Uh, Second one is, how is your organization connected to other people who are using it? So if you draw the network of relationships, once it starts to spread to part of the network that's close to you, particularly if it's upstream of you, that it's your clients or um, people who have control over you, There's much more pressure to adopt it yourself. And then there's a sort of respect factor, which is it's not going to spread from someone that you don't like to you. But if someone that you think is a higher status company or a bigger company or a more successful company is doing it, then it's more likely to spread to you as well. So they call these different models for how it works. uh, Admiration processes, bandwagon processes, herding, panaceas, uh, epidemics, all sorts of models, if you imagine like a disease spreading or an idea spreading, that, that's what they're trying to show.
0: Yeah, Drew, I think actually the paper at some point said there was referenced another paper that had talked about fads and fashions being like viruses in organisations. Um, but look, and they said that rollbacks work a similar way. Once companies start to reject an idea and a small group of companies start to reject it, then it kind of broadcasts across in the same way um, And and you know, we've got here, you know, the idea that something like zero harm is probably in that space right now where you've got a small number of companies that have rejected the idea. And now you're getting a lot of broadcasting, you know, about that to as a practice to organizations.
1: I just thought that was really interesting, the idea that rejecting an idea can also be a fashionable thing to do. And the same thing that you can, you know, reject the idea, but still keep doing the same practices you were doing before.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I think this is the first time we'll say that in not many places, or in nowhere, in in this in this place, was uh, was discussion about the, you know, evidence base for accepting and rejecting ideas. Even though you said earlier, Drew, which the literature claims that, you know, these are rational decisions that organisations make in the belief that they're going to be improving their company, their their the performance of their business. There was no sort of discussion about the uptake and the spread and the diffusion of these ideas and the rejection of these ideas as being kind of evidence-based, which kind of um, is a bit of a kick in the guts for the Safety of Work podcast. But nevertheless, we, uh, we press on.
1: Yeah, I, I did use the word rational, but I think it's meant in a very specific purpose here, which is just because you think that what you're doing is reasoned doesn't necessarily mean that your reasons are, in fact, what you think they are. And these models show pretty clearly, and there's a lot of empiricism, so checking in the real world that these models actually match what happens, things like how many other people are using it has a big effect. Things like how you're connected to other people has a big effect. But there's no need in any of these models for a parameter that says how much the practice actually works. So people think they're making rational decisions, but they're in fact making fashionable decisions
0: yeah, absolutely. it's it's entirely a social. it's it appears to be entirely a, a social process. Um, and drew, they talk about when 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 companies adopt these these ideas and these practices, they talk about sort of the literature is a bit confused here. They talk about you can adopt it in two ways. One is to take the kind of the cookie cutter approach and just adopt the practice exactly like it's described or the idea or or how another companies do it or you can kind of do like this translation model where you sort of take the idea but you kind of adapt it and shape it and reshape it in sometimes a way that it actually doesn't look anything like the way that the practice is is being done in a different organization as well even though that's in the literature there is another part of the literature that says you actually can't cookie cutter anything it's always going to be adapted when it when it goes into a into a new organization but Broadly, I didn't. I, I quite like those those two categories of sort of how organisations take up those practices.
1: There, there was there was one part in the paper where they talked about three sort of steps in an idea travelling, as it sort of launches from one organisation to others. There's universalising of the particular. There's travel of the universal, and then there's particularising of the universal. So universalizing of the particular is where you've got something that's working in one company and you start to put labels on it and make it more generic, or something that's working in one industry and you start to make it something that works in all industries at all times and in all places. It's then that more general idea that travels, but then it needs to be turned back into something particular if it's going to be implemented Uh, So I was trying to think of some specific ideas in safety, and I was thinking of some of the types of um, aerospace practices. So you have like pre-flight checklists. That idea is a very specific thing that's done at a specific time, actually in an aircraft. You get that turned into the more general idea of a checklist. This is now a universal. A checklist can be used by anyone at any time in any organization. And then it gets particularized. You get pre-surgery checklists. It gets turned back into a specific practice at a particular place.
0: Yeah, look, and I think ideas of like uh, life-saving rules and critical risk management fall into that category where companies have a set of rules and then get turned into this big broad thing of life-saving rules. And then companies approach, you know, how they design and how they communicate and how they sort of put those rules and enforce them into place, you know, back into the particular circumstances of their, their business. And the same with like the critical risk work. So quite a few other programs now that are targeting frontline operations, I think, will fit neatly into that. Sort of that sort of broadcast um, diffusion type of cycle.
1: So we're getting on now to, we've talked about how the fads and fashions get generated. We've talked about how they spread and get adopted. The next sort of thing is how come some of them get kept and some of them just wash away again? And the paper's got some beautiful examples of different types. My favourite one, which I think they took great joy in pointing out, but I can see why, is they pointed out that the idea of employee vacations was a management fad. (laughs) That it was one of these things that no one gave employees like a set number of weeks a year that you could just take and spend away from work. And then it became a popular thing to do and it spread through industries. And then it has clearly hung around and no one thinks of it as this crazy fad of
0: vacations. Yeah, I found that a great example, Drew, that like, you know, more than a hundred years ago, that uh, what they used to call a company church or a sociological department, which I assume was the original form of a HR department, was sitting around 120 years ago saying, "How can we improve the fostering of our employees' commitment to our company?" And someone says, "Let's give them paid holidays," and that's that. That sort of became a fashion, and that that was a fashion for you know half a century, you know, before things start before it started being institutionalized. So, so that's clearly something that stuck around. And then there's other things that we talked about you know, other ideas that then come along and disappear. So the research sort of proposes numerous sort of cultural, political and technical factors that, you know, influence the adoption and the persistence of these fashions. But basically, there's an overriding, I suppose, idea that says that the practices will persist in an organisation as long as the political forces remain to keep them in balance. And, talks about, you know, and we know that what can happen if there's a change in management or if um, shareholders or boards give a slightly different direction to an organisation, then it can quickly change management practices. So there's a lot of politics in the literature about how something, you know, what's required for something to stick.
1: And the paper points out that some of the actors that a practice gets linked to are inherently transitory. So if you're in an organisation that changes senior management every few years, then there's very little likelihood of a fad lasting within that that organisation if all it's tied to is the desire of the CEO to have this particular practice in place. Whereas if it gets built into your HR and hiring practices and is in every employee contract, that's been institutionalized and is going to hang around longer. If it's not just in every employee contract, but it's in the contracts that your organization has with your suppliers and with the people you supply to, then now it's really institutionalized. and It's going to be hard for you or your suppliers or your subcontractors to get rid of, even if you wanted to get rid of it. And the example that really sprung to mind for me, David, I don't know what you think, is um, the idea of safety management systems. Safety management systems 100% are a fad. In the sense that they came in in a very similar way to total quality management systems. And we saw TQM sort of wash in and wash out again. But safety management systems, which look identical, have stuck. And I think the reason is that regulators have adapted to regulate organizations through the safety management system. And organizations use safety management systems as things for things like, you know, pre-qualification of subcontractors and for auditing each other and for project approvals. And it's been, they've become so built into the way organizations work with other organizations and the way organizations work with regulators in safety, and even into our accident investigation processes, that they've sort of turned from being a fashion into being an institution that you'd have to very carefully prize out and you'd never totally get rid of them now.
0: Yeah, I think, Drew, that's exactly right. And that reminds me of this, the example that we gave about the paid leave. You know, Definitely getting something in, intertwined in in regulation is a way of making a practice stick so then, Drew, they talk about the possible rebirth, and and this is like we've talked about. So so we've got we've got these um, these practices um, that emerge in an organisation to fill a gap. Then we've got these consultants and academics and and other interested people who get in and package them up and communicate them. Then companies sort of go, oh, look, this this is going to help our problem as well, and they diffuse them into their business and try to embed them. And then some stick, like we've just given examples, and some sort of like disappear or disappear at least for a period of time. And then they talk about this this rebirth, and they even gave examples like um, lean production and TQM. You know, even in the 1990s was simply a, a revival of fashions popular during the early early 20th century. You know, and and there's a there's a paper that's referenced from 1956, um, which actually then says, you know ideas from old times, so in 1956 saying ideas from old times have just been rephrased rather than abandoned. So there's no new ideologies. We just put currently fashionable terminology around old ideas. And I think, Drew, I straight away thought about things like, and we've spoken about it before in in a couple of papers that, you know, theory X and theory Y from the 1960s, which talks about, you know, should management direct the workers or should management have more of a participative style is not that dissimilar to ideas of safety one and safety differently.
1: Yeah, and we can see similar things with Quality Circles, Learning Team, Hop, just the, the, the same practice. It's, it's, sorry, it's not the a, a, identical practice, um, and that's one of the points they make in the paper, is that these things do actually evolve and improve each time they come back. It's not just necessarily rebranding. It can, in fact, be an evolution of some quite rudimentary ideas into much more sophisticated, possibly actually better and more better ideas. So you know, the fact that it comes back doesn't necessarily have to be cynical. It can be you're rediscovering, improving, updating
0: the ideas. Yeah, Andrew. The final section of the paper talks about technological change. I mean, it's a 2020 paper, and and a lot's happened in the last ten years. I mean, you know, we wouldn't have been podcasting ten years ago. We wouldn't have been exchanging ideas with our listeners on on LinkedIn. You know, so that so they did recognise that that these three decades of research that they were reviewing, two thirds of it. Or more than two thirds of it, um, in terms of volume, was conducted sort of before these technological changes that impact our daily lives. But they've kind of said that most of the literature, at least in their um, interpretation of it, still holds pretty sound. Um, although there's some there's some interesting challenges in terms of that. They say that maybe not all innovations now need to evolve to solve an organisational problem that you can't genuinely have. Quite a quick diffusion of, of of novel, innovative ideas that you know aren't observations of you know actual management practices,
1: and the way that those ideas uh, get spread too. Previously, there was a little bit of a bottleneck because you had to make your way into one of the marketing channels. You at the very least you had to get invited to a conference or have a publisher agree to publish your book. Whereas now. All you have to do is put a blog post on LinkedIn and set yourself up with a website and suddenly you have the ability to broadcast the idea and to claim ownership
0: of the idea. So I think, Drew... You know, they also talked about not necessarily needing those hero managers, and they made specific examples about some consulting businesses that were also now packaging up, you know, their observations of what they see in the field, and and going straight to companies with uh with with new ideas as well. So there's a fair bit happening, um, it appears, in this space. As we'd all be aware, if we if we sit and reflect on it, that the actual, you know, the, the researchers are really starting to think about, you know, just how these these ideas flow and how they get diffused into organizations, and you know how they get taken up drew, I think if we if we go to practical takeaways do are we ready to go to practical takeaways or do you want to add anything else? No I think let's do that. Okay, so do you want to kick us off? So we've spent a while now talking about these fads and fashions as as being sort of socially shared and not empirically based and you know in and out of organizations, and you know our our listeners probably live with that every day in their in their organizations so so what can they do?
1: Okay, so so the first takeaway I'd throw in is, I know some of our listeners are academics or want to be academics. Be self-aware about what you're doing when you take ideas for improving business. One thing that I've fought with throughout my own career is that being a guru can be, it can seem really, really attractive. Other people sort of look to you as a font of wisdom and a source of ideas and want you to tell them what to do, what's the right way to do things. But that's the same sort of attractive pull that someone gets for being a social media influencer and someone else wanting to buy the same shoes that you've bought. So I'd really encourage academics to think, is this really what you want to do with your skills? Um, If it really is, if you just want to buy into that and run with it, absolutely fine. It's certainly a valuable, important role. But don't go into it blindly be conscious of the difference between being an academic and studying management practices and describing them honestly, and being a promoter where what you're doing is packaging things up for distribution.
0: Yeah, Andrew, I think for people on the practitioner side is, you know, going to the safety science literature or the other sources of literature, like we said about things, you you could play a key role in the rejection or the adoption of these practices in your organization. As I'm sure all our listeners do, they say, you know, I'm I can I can play a role in you know whether I support and promote something or whether I try to stop something from from coming into into my business, and and all we'd say is lean on the the evidence base around what you decide to undermine and what you decide to to promote and support. Not necessarily just do things because your CEO's talk to another CEO and you know another company's doing something, and and now your CEO wants you to do something.
1: And and be very careful of giving legitimacy to those questions that tend to spread fads. So one of the things that I get asked when I'm speaking to companies is they want to know who else is doing this. And it's a question that you don't want to buy into giving the answer to. You want to push back on because it's not the right question. Okay, we've got a problem in our organization. We have a potential solution. The question is not who else thinks that this is a good solution. The question is, do we think it's a good solution? And why do we think it's a good solution for our problem in our organization? What's the evidence? What's the fit between the practice and what we need?
0: Yeah, that's great. And I think the extension of that would be that just remember when you're ad- you're adopting a packaged set of ideas, you're not actually adopting a practice. It doesn't become a practice in your organization until you make it a practice. So you you do actually have a lot of freedom. Like I said, you, you may not have freedom in whether or not to adopt a fad. It might even be um, required. In regulation or something like that, but you do have a whole lot of freedom in how you actually turn that into practice and apply it in your own organization.
1: Do you just imagine the number of different choices you've actually got. If someone says to you, you need to implement a safety culture improvement program. You, you can yeah. say you're doing something to improve safety culture and just choose anything from a massive
0: smorgasbord of ideas and practices. Or an even bigger potential list uh drew is you know we want to do safety differently then i can pick absolutely anything different to what i'm currently doing <laughs> in, in my business <laughs> so, fair, fair call yeah
1: so so those are our takeaways david what would we like to hear from the listeners
0: look i think um we've talked about fads and fashions and you know one of the interesting thing is what do, what do people think are some of the biggest fads in safety um you know i'd like to i'd love people to you know tell us stories about where. Fads have come into their business, you know, things that they used to do for safety a decade ago, but they no longer do now. And we can see if we can use this literature to kind of try and, you know, track and work out, you know, you know some of the things that have happened in safety. You know, we know there's a lot of broadcasting going on at the moment with ideas about safety differently and safety too. So we'd also, you know, I'd also like interested in um, in our listeners' opinions of kind of like how they feel that's being received, you know, inside their own organizations or or in their professional circles. So Drew, the question for today was, how do we tell the difference between theories and fads in safety? Did we, did we really talk much about the actual question?
1: So, so I think we do actually have an answer coming out of the model that the paper gave us, which is that we can look for the point of origin and the mechanism of spread. So theories originate in academic circles. Theories are scientific observation. They do aim to be generalizable, but they also aim to be mainly descriptive, saying this is what happens. And the paper we looked at today is a classic example. The paper we looked at today is not itself a fad or a fashion. It's not designed to spread. It's designed to describe what's going on. Whereas fads go through this cycle of proto-innovation within an organization, package up to be a generic solution to a problem in a way that has a neat, clear explanation, some clear labels that can be applied, some simple ideas that go along with it. And then they spread as that package moves about. So that's sort of one way of telling the difference. The other simple way is that theories are tested. Theories spread based on how well they stand up to scientific scrutiny. Fashion spread based on social forces. They spread socially, they get abandoned socially.
0: So Drew, for our listeners thinking, what should I do about the safety fads and fashions in my own organisation? I think our short advice would be go to the literature or just um, keep listening to the Safety of Work podcast.
1: Very good. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. And as David said at the start of the episode... Go tell someone else about the podcast
0: if you enjoyed this episode.